G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast where we explore the challenging ideas that divide us and maybe some that inspire us. My name's Conrad. And it's Matt. Now, new friends of the show, of course, welcome. Regular friends, double welcome. Super friends, you get the super welcome. The shrine. The shrine. Matt has been watering your shrines, our mm-hmm. super friends of the show. Obviously, these are the people that went to itisdigest.org. They clicked, they signed up, they supported the show. They keep us doing what we're doing. Couldn't actually do it without them. 100%. Thank you so much for everyone that uh, supports us. Um, sometimes we talk to ourselves for hours and we upload to the internet and we wonder who the hell's listening. <laughs> it's a super but friend. your support means the world. Thank you it so does. much. Now, Matt, I've got a game to kick this off. Love games. It's called review or not a review. Mm. I'm going to give you a review. Did I, did Conrad make it up or is it a real review on the website that I got? Okay. Okay. Here's a review. Well, if I know if it mentions me, it's probably fake. <laughs> probably fake. Yeah, <laughs> Matt doesn't have any reviews on his name yet. So we got to rectify that. Next week it'll be about Someone you and review. you'll be like fake. Yep. <laughs> um, okay. Here it is. It's by no nickname Claudia. Five stars. This is my favorite podcast because at the end of it, the challenge really lies with me to reconsider my biases, not with the speaker to make their ideas more palatable to me. It's the antidote to social media. Some big calls, Matt. Tick, tick, tick. Review or not a review? There's no other one. This is this. There's only one I get to work with. Yeah, this is it. You just... Oh, my pressure. So play along at home. I feel like it's penalty shootout. Did Conrad make this up or is it real? It's real. It is real. I wasn't going to kick off on a fakie. We got heaps of good reviews. So thank you, No no, no Nickname Claudia, for sending that in. Obviously, if you'd love to show your support, Mm -hmm. Apple Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. That's really nice. That was really well written. Thank you. And it's given me these catchphrases, the antidote to social media. I mean, we all need one these days. And if Mm. we're it, get your shots, get your vaccines in. Oh, no, don't mention that. That'll flag. (laughs) That'll flag the algorithm fake news. We're struggling enough with the algorithm as it is, Conrad. It is add another layer of... Matt, I'm so glad you brought up the algorithm now because I've been obviously on the journey of how, how we grow on this podcast, connect with more friends of the show. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at other podcasting friends of the show that I've had on. I'm looking at their TikToks, their Instagrams and... A little bit of jealousy. Listen, it's, it's paying it. It's I'm hard. like, 96K? <laughs> <laughs> How do you get there? Then you go, must be bought. And you check their engagement. You're like, it's, nah. like, it's really high. <laughs> it's really high. Screw uh, you guys. Dirty rotten church kids. I'm yeah, looking at uh, you. <laughs> Friends of the show. Had them on. They're doing really well. They're awesome. Can't, can't complain about that. So well done, boys. Uh, and I was even like looking at, you know, some controversial stuff like, like the Daily Wire, you know, conservative mm. right wing Ben Shapiro. I was following his Instagram and I was trying to get tips, I guess, because at the end of the day, this guy knows how the algorithm works. So I thought we got to, we got to. But wh- secret friends of the show need to know how much Ben Shapiro triggers you though. Like, would they know that? Oh, they they, they know think that. you're some work guy that just goes, oh, Ben, I'll talk. I'll bring him on the podcast. I'll, I'll have him. a conversation. <laughs> Listen, I would. And you don't hear the behind the scenes, Conrad rages. <laughs> Conrad unfiltered. Super friends will definitely hear Conrad <laughs> unfiltered on some of that stuff. But for regular friends of the show, I'm in a bastion of enlightenment on the high horse, being able to palette challenging ideas. If that's if that's what you get out of this show, I'm glad. That I'm you glad I'm here me. at least to destroy that. Yeah, that. I don't like it as much. So anyway, I was I was learning. I'm like, I've got to learn from from people. So you know, the Daily Wire, it's doing snarky memes about Joe Biden, right? If you're mm. a conservative in America, you hate Joe Biden. Doesn't matter what he's doing. You got a meme about how he's an idiot. This is 
this is great for the algorithm sure. because you've got an enemy. You know, mm. I mentioned friends of the show, Dirty Rotten Church Kids. They're really good at memes. Yeah. But memes, they're always like kind of jabbing, like obviously they come from a church background. They're kind of doing memes about joking about what it was like to be back in church. We've got a bit of an enemy, right? Like uh, we, we're here now. There's those people over there. And that's our problem, Matt. We don't, we don't have an enemy. I'm like, Frey, you can be a friend of the show. You don't have a friend of the show. So you know what? It's over. Mm. I'm done. I'm declaring war, Matt, on the scourge of society you mentioned at the beginning. So Ideas Digest is going to war. We are going to war with the algorithm. Algorithms divide us. They put us into little echo chambers where we can't connect with the other side. They control everything we see. So I'm going to war Conrad, with them. I don't know if you know about this about me, but I do plan on being a pet for an AI in the future. And you don't want to piss off the algorithm? No. Well, Matt, it's too bad. You get on board. I'm going to war. So I've, I've got our war strategy time down. Okay. And you know who it relies on? A good frontal, full frontal assault relies on the people. So friends of the show, we need your help. Okay, we've declared war on the algorithm. Okay. Friends of the show, here's how we're going to do a consistent assault on the algorithm. This is really warlike, this, like, this language. Yep, yep. I'm tribalizing, mate. You're with me or you're against me. Wow. This is, this is how this it is works. Conrad's just like mm -hmm. personifying his old Age of Empires 2 tactics. <laughs> Good one, Matt. <laughs> From back in the day, Windows 98. Yeah. Back there, showing you your age. the cheat codes. Yeah, we've got to appeal to Gen Z, mate. They don't know okay, what, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Something like Clash like of Clans. Clash of Clans, yes, yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, so anyway, here's what we're going to do. Friends of the show, I need your help with this. So as you're listening to this episode, maybe you get to the end, maybe you're halfway through. You can pause it. You can keep listening. I want you to share it with someone who you think will like it. And you're like, hey, mm. my mum's going to like this or Peter's going to like that. Steve, I was going to like that. Yeah. Sally, Susan, whoever they are, share it with them and say, hey, I thought you'd like this because X, Y, Z. And then share it with someone who you know won't really like the conversation we're having or the perspective there. That's the breaking of the algorithm because normally algorithms like they tribalize, they put you in little kind of concentration camps. So if you could, as you're listening, someone who'll like it and then mm. someone who won't like it, you'd say, hey, this is challenging. I can give you sentences if you like, you want to add to the text like, was wondering about your thoughts on this. What, have you got any, what would you say if you're sending it to someone who didn't really like, like, oh, I've got this one. was interesting. No, no, no. I thought this was great, but I know you're too ignorant to enjoy it. <laughs> that is declaring full out war. What? We're at war. Oh, <laughs> that is, I mean, sure. I'll take, yeah. I'll share this with you, but I don't know if you have the IQ level to understand it. Is this, am I, I've just gone too intense now? Yeah, I feel like that's like war crimes. Normally each episode- we engage with an idea that might be challenging, sure. different perspective, and we hop on our you know, little moral high horse. You know, we sit high, we look down. Oh, I understand that perspective. Oh, wouldn't that land over there? Mm. It's what friends of the show like about it. You can survey from a distance, sometimes safely from up a pop up, up on top the Ideas sure. Digest high horse. I need a very a tall ivory tower. Very tall. It's mm. a tall horse. Yeah. Is this a safe space we're in right now? Of course, Conrad. Can I hop down from my high horse just for a minute to confess something to you? I'd have to come down with you, but yes. <laughs> okay, so we're, it's safe. We're going to yes. step down. Okay, Matt, I sent some DMs and I left some comments online. Slide into the DM, old Conrad. I got triggered. I got triggered, Matt. I could trigger that easily. And I, I did. I did. And I'm going to tell you all about it, all right? Someone on Instagram, a potential friend of the show, invitation is always open. I have extended the invitation. You mean he's a hater? She. She, okay. Melissa Doherty posted this video 
and the story onto our YouTube channel. Okay. Let's I'll do it. play the clip. Furries, uh, there's a furries trend in your hometown of Brisbane. Sadly, yes. It turns out that at a Brisbane private school, there are students who have jumped onto this new furries <sighs> trend and who do, in fact, <laughs> Always believe a sky they news. are cats. And foxes, they lick their paws and there is one girl apparently cut a hole in her skirt to make room it's for an Australian an news channel, tale. by the way. Wow. However, this is equivalent of Fox News yes. in the US. Murdoch owns it. She possibly would because <laughs> that's how she identifies, so that's that. Uh, Corey was right. I'll just <laughs> oh, repeat that. These <laughs> woke kids. Corey, oh. you were right. In fact, Good banter they've got, though. Yeah, I like their energy. I have to suggest that... I watched this and I saw one, an American, Melissa Doherty, potential friend of the show. I would love to chat to mm. her. You know, if, if I get treated, I'll try and extend the invitation to be enlightened, hop on back up on the high horse. Mm -hmm. Not there at the moment. She's an American. She's played the mm. story about like, in Australia talking on our politics. And it triggered me because I am or was a teacher, not currently a teacher, but I am a teacher. And to hear an American comment on our news and our schools mm. Just bothered me so much because I was like, "That's this is your American thing of like, oh, people pretending to be cats. This is the woke left gone mad. Australia's trying to import it. As you see, that's our Australian news program trying to like drum up a bit of outrage and division. Sure. And so to see an American kind of comment on this, it, 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 really, it really got me. So I sent some messages, Matt. I tried to like temper myself, but I actually, I sent a follow-up link. Because right, I was like, was the emoji of like steam coming out your ears. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, I didn't send that emoji, but okay, I, that would have been serious. Honest emoji would have been that. So I sent this video. I was like, we need some fact checking here. So then I played this clip. So what was her evidence for this outlandish claim? Yeah. Not much, to put it mildly. According to Lang, she had several unrelated sources, <laughs> all anonymous, sources. saying girls were walking on all fours and licked e their hands e like her paws. Bosses going, we need Among some, them was we need a some school, school insider. School insider these the children vague, were not like, being disciplined you know, because the, the TLDR seemed on this, too worried you're watching about not and offending anyone. You're watching. And one woman told her that everyone was talking about kids identifying one as cats and foxes at a unverified. recent Brisbane dinner party. Wow. Three unnamed sources with second or third-hand knowledge and no photos, no videos or first-hand testimony to back up the claims. I sent that video because I was like, this is an Australian thing. He's an Australian journalistic organisation sure. that has something called an editorial review board. It actually checks sources. I was just kind of like, hey, as a teacher, as an mm. Australian, just here are some facts. And you know what? You got a response. I got a response. Conrad loves the response. I got a response. And so, do you want to read? You want me to read my comment to see how snarky I was? I was a bit, maybe I was a bit too snarky. Anyway, I said, if you're interested in some decent journalism about the story you based your video on, and I said, only if you're open to the facts, shruggy emoji, shruggy emoji. <laughs> as, as a teacher, this stuff gets me annoyed. So I was like personalizing it, you know. Teachers don't need, and this is where I'm like getting a rant. I was channeling my inner, just like yeah. middle aged That's teacher not Karen. Right. Like, yeah, just like really just. You know, in the, in the teaching world, you know, you can sit in the staff room and have a good sure. whinge about, oh, this student doing this and, oh, I can't believe the new regulations or I really channeled that, that energy. And so I was like, teachers don't need more of this made up rubbish making their jobs harder. Teachers do have hard jobs. And, and I said, I'd hate to have the division in America around its schooling system imported into Australia for the political gain of politicians determined, jab. determined to distract from their rampant corruption. So I slipped in. Yeah, like that's a, a bit of a knife in the, in the kidneys. And then anyway, she responded. She responded. 
Melissa responded. She says, hi, thanks for the info. She watched it. Respect, Melissa. Respect. Do you know if there's a direct statement from the school about this particular situation? Anyway, I responded being like, well, in the video, they didn't even reach out. It was an opinion piece, all those sure. sorts of things. And you know what? This is why I really, I'm vibing Melissa's a future friend of the show is because her next post that she posted, I went to try and find the video for this very segment of confession that I get triggered, I write comments sure, yeah, yeah. and normally it doesn't end well. But Melissa, she, wow. she puts up a post and says, hi, today I released a video about a girl in an Australian school who identified as a cat. Though it's demonstratedly true and trans species are a real thing and something in our culture. She says, not backing down from yeah, her yeah, story yeah. element, but she goes, it's been brought to my attention that specific news stories from the school might be lacking evidence. Respect. Yeah. Respect. Like, I understand that's, that's a worldview. I'd love to get her on to explore some of her worldview. Um, so she she's a, has a YouTube channel? Yeah, she has a YouTube channel, mm. Instagram, uh, probably from the conservative Christian okay. take. Um, does really does some really good like TikTok type things. Once maybe, again- Maybe she can help us with the old uh, algorithm. Algorithm, yeah. I know. I know. A hater's just a friend that doesn't know it yet. <laughs> so Melissa, invitation's always open. You're welcome on the show. We'd love to ha- learn more about- the demonstrably true trans species yeah. culture that is developing and potentially harmful, which I think from her perspective, she would say it's harmful. Yeah. What would that, what, what is so bad about that? I would like to know more about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you honestly listen to Conrad and I, we, we're, we're genuinely trying to yeah, would, understand what I'd is bad curious. about that. I'd be very curious because yeah. I'm coming from my bias as a teacher. Even if that story was true, their kids Kids do weird stuff sure. all of the time. Yeah. If pretending to be a cat is only one of them, I don't think you've taught grade four. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that would be, but that's my teacher bias, right? Maybe sure. there's a serious pandemic going on with mm. children being confused about their gender identity, which is her position. Would love to have her on to talk about it. Or if you know someone else who might hold this position, send them in. Love to meet a new friend of the show. Sure. All right, moving on. On to the main event of the podcast, what yes. you're all here for. We're going to begin with i'm going to try and hook everyone with some youtube titles okay okay so this episode is about a secular pro-life advocate right and i'm trying to come up obviously we're battling the algorithm i'm trying to come up with i'm trying to come up with clickbait titles or thumbnails for a youtube channel if this was a youtube video what would the titles be and i've got a couple and if you can come up with a better one or friends of the show if you can come up with a better one you just get those clicks right yeah so here we go what do you think about this why you're wrong about pro-lifers. You the click? Maybe. Everyone, everyone, oh, really? Am I wrong? Might get it in. I don't know. Mm. And then another one. Seven surprising things I learned about being pro-life. And, and maybe the, emo- maybe the mm. thumbnail is like, oh, you know, like you have a little facial expression to like, because we've got to screen grab it and put it on the thumbnail. Mm. Yeah. Next one. An atheist almost made me pro-life. Maybe with a... 100%. That, that one? one? Yeah. So, okay, if that's the one, we got to do the thumbnail shot right now. So, okay. podcasters, just bear with us. We're going to like pose to the camera. So, it's like, I'll, I'll say, an atheist almost made me pro-life. Screenshot. Okay, maybe that'll be the one. <laughs> maybe the one we know with. Now, before we move on, Matt, just give me some assumptions that you might be having. She's an atheist. She's pro-life. Hmm. What's, you, haven't, you haven't heard it yet. What's your thoughts on who she might be? Yeah, I, I would probably guess that she comes from... Yeah, you would say the Midwest, potentially. Okay. She leans right. Politically. Um, politically. Yeah. Christian background. 
deconstructed, but still holds that sort of demographic values. Okay. So still the values, but you know how they've done studies on kids, like the, those values are pretty ingrained ingrained into you at a young age. Really? So she's carried those values across, even though she's politically and or like obviously theologically evolved. Okay. Interesting. Could be. Now, once again, for the algorithm gods, I'm going to generate, I'm going to TLDR it for TikTok. And then we're going to get into long form. Mm. Okay. Here's the TLDR. Meet Monica. She's an atheist and is the head of the secular pro-life movement. Lives in California. Went to college there. She grew up in a pro-choice Catholic household, but is now an atheist. Christianish. She was radicalized on Facebook. You didn't like that one? Words. And now argues that personhood begins radicalized. at conception. Wow. So radicalized in the sense of like now she used fights for, for her life. Yeah, yeah. It's a strong word, but yeah, yeah. it's TikTok. You get yeah, those yeah, Gen yeah, Zs yeah, yeah, in. Yeah. Um, so this means she's fighting for human rights because personhood begins at conception. So she's fighting for human rights issue. She believes it should be illegal, but recognizes that both moral, the moral complexities of the issue and she engages robustly in the arguments. Okay. Um, so if you want to challenge yourself with the most logical and coherent arguments against abortion, you need to listen to this episode. I'm super curious. How I'm was how was that? Was I'm that a clicking. good? Yeah, you need to listen to it. If you're gonna heat map that thing, that thumbnail, I'm clicking all over the thumbnail. And I want in. And she changed my mind. Whoa. And if you want to That's f- difficult, guys. <laughs> and if you want to find out why, Super Friends will. How's that? The plug to the Super Friends. How's, am I doing this algorithm thing or what? Yeah, you might be pissing off some of the free guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Sorry, free friends of the show. Plenty for you as well. You'll still hear a lot of this. So, friends of the show, keep listening. If you're intrigued by that kind of TikTok synopsis, let's keep going. Oh, wait, before we go, I should read the warning label on this one. Trigger. The warning label is contains American-centric attitudes. It's a very American-centric problem. As an Aussie, your friend of the show, Australian, might be listening. Who cares, mate? I'm an Aussie. Mm. And I get get you. I feel you. But it does filter over. Okay. And so I think it's still interesting. And another warning would- super curious. How is she going to- I guess she's just breaking my brain a bit because I've got all this bias towards- Like how is someone who's secular going to be pro-life? Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Some facts in this episode may need to be checked. Conrad doesn't check them. (laughs) It's up to you guys. (laughs) Straight and narrow. (laughs) She, She made some compelling arguments. And you might need a fact. But I believe in the, the, the you, you would say like the the meta brain of ideas digest. I do too. Yeah. They'll correct us where They'll we go They'll correct wrong. us. Um, so I just hold them loosely. I'm like, oh, if that's true, that could be game changer. Yeah. Haven't factored it yet. And um, the final warning is some of these challenging ideas may change your mind. So if you're not ready to have your mind changed. This, this sounds like an interview that's not sort of, you don't often frame interviews like this. this no, sounds it's like, true. This sounds like an interview that... I enjoyed it. Yeah, I know you enjoy every interview, but I'm like... <laughs> true. Changing your mind's on the, not an easy feat, you know, for the many conversations we've had over coffee shops and dinners and arguments where both our wives look at us and say, guys... Keep the level, level down. down. Like, relax. That's why we're in a room all by ourselves right now. <laughs> we're speaking loudly. Mm. Yeah, curious. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm clicking. I'm there. All right, well, friends of the show... With the fact checkers, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely fact check everything. We're not a factual information base, but you'll understand the facts that they pull on to come to their conclusions. So obviously if you unravel that fact, then their conclusion, you might go, well, I don't follow them because I don't think that's the correct interpretation of that set of data. 
So friends of the show, super friends of the show, and new friends of the show, enjoy the interview with new friend of the show, Monica from Secular Pro-Life. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people. Categorizing of humans and ideas. You have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being. To who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas. These things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Um, abortion would be unjustifiable in every situation, including incest and rape, simply through the argumentation that two wrongs do not make a right. Only exception to that would be where, wherein the life of the mother is at threat. One of the main reasons that I changed my position on abortion is after I had my five children, I just came to really understand that the way motherhood and birth and pregnancy affects a woman is absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> and that that's not something that somebody should ever be forced into. I work in suicide prevention and a lot of people's lives, like being alive can be overrated. It's um, a very difficult world out there and a lot of people are in pain and yeah, and it's great when people have hope and find something to live for. But yeah, it's just, you can't force suffering on people. I believe there is a need for and a place for abortion. However, using abortion as a form of contraception will only lead to pain. I trust women and I trust women to make an informed decision about their bodies and their futures. And I also trust women to be able to discern whether or not the infrastructure and resources that we have are set up to best benefit them and children. We probably really downplay how hard it is for a woman choosing, like making a choice. Um, because you look at a woman that has a miscarriage before 12 weeks and for most of them it's absolutely devastating. Um, and I imagine a woman that chooses an abortion has similar feelings, even though they chose it. My thoughts on abortion have changed drastically over time. I was raised in a Southern Baptist world, and now I'm a mental health therapist. Um, and I think that's changed my thoughts because of the amount of hell I see people currently living through that were not wanted or parents didn't have the capacity to have in the real world. And um, I think sometimes that choice to not have a child is a mercy. We are back today for another episode on the front lines of the political and culture war that I don't think will ever truly end. But joining me here on the front lines to provide a bit more insight into this very, very contentious issue that I'm unsure whether I should explore or not, but fear no idea, so onward we go, is new friend of the show, Monica from Secular Pro-Life. Monica, thank you so much for joining the Ideas Digest podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to have you here. We've just kind of met. We don't know too much about each other. I hear an accent. I'm making some guesses. But if we were to just meet, you know, somewhere in your local town, maybe it's at an American diner. I don't know if you're in America. I'm guessing there. That's an assumption. 
introduce yourself to me. Who, who are you and, and what do you do? We just bump into each other. And it's like, oh, hey, Monica. Yeah, my name's Conrad. Nice to meet you. Tell me a tiny bit about yourself. Well, hi, Conrad. I think we're probably out of Starbucks. And I okay. I am the executive director of a nonprofit um, called Secular Pro-Life because I am an atheist and I am against abortion. It's run by myself and two other women, also atheists against abortion, and then a, a small group of volunteers that help us in the background. And our goal is in the United States to make space in this discussion for people who are not religious and who do oppose abortion because they are often overlooked. In fact, they are so overlooked that a lot of times they come to us and say that they thought they were the only one until they found our group and realized there's more of us. Uh, that's one of our goals. And then our goal is to advance non-religious secular arguments opposing abortion. Very good, very good synopsis of what you're doing. Tell me a, a little bit about yourself. I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. What do you do outside of this? Uh, I, I'm a mom. <laughs> I... I spend a lot of time at this job. I actually really love this job. And if I, to be frank, if I wasn't a mom, I would probably be doing this like 60, 70 hours a week. Even more. Oh yeah, I love this job. I was having a problem. I volunteered for this group for over 10 years and I was getting to the point where, so I started doing it in my early 20s. I didn't have kids. I was in college, but I had more flexible time. And then as time and life goes on, I started to realize that I couldn't, I literally couldn't afford to volunteer for this group anymore because I was taking too much time away from my day job and my, my family. And so I started scaling way back and then through a whole bunch of different events, I ended up being able to switch to doing this as my job, which gives me a little bit more freedom for my passion for it while still having time to take care of my kids and occasionally see friends and do other things. <laughs> Well, Monica, it's really nice to meet you, but I must confess, and I must, I must be honest with you here. I've just met you, and you, you seem like a very nice person, but I've, I've got some judgments and some assumptions and some biases that I've just been thinking this whole time, but I thought rather than just think them, can I confess them to you and get them off my chest and give you a bit of a right of reply so you can say like yes or no and, and see if I'm on the mark or if I'm off the money. How does that sound? That sounds entertaining. <laughs> Good. Yes, it definitely is. So we're talking about abortion. Uh, I'm assuming you're in America. And since it's a, a abortion in America, Monica, you must be some Texas woman from Texas. <laughs> uh, that's great. No, I'm not from Texas. I spent most of my life in California, actually. Um, mm, I thought yeah, the accent to, was off. I went to UC Berkeley. Uh, for my undergrad and UC Davis, so University of California, Berkeley and Davis for my undergrad and my master's degree. And I spent all my adulthood there and I actually only moved out of California um, a year ago. So okay. not Texas. Californian. Okay. So you you could be some liberal woke lefty then. That's what you must be from California. Uh, <laughs> I could be. I'm not. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, lean, I lean politically conservative. Our group tries very hard to be nonpartisan. So our board president is a moderate and our board vice president is 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 a liberal woke leftist we're quite good friends actually um yeah we we all share the same passion for this specific issue and we kind of everything else kind of is in the background but no i went to berkeley even as a conservative that was an interesting interesting college experience oh so uh were you bullied <laughs> were you bullied there then no 
Oh, the nice thing about politics is nobody knows what they are unless you choose to tell them. And so people just assumed I was a liberal woke leftist unless I said otherwise. And what you do with these issues is you get to know people. When you're at Starbucks, you don't start off saying, I am against Uh, abortion or I'm a Republican at Berkeley. Yeah, no. That's my opener. (laughs) (laughs) You become friends with people. You get to know them over weeks or months. And then in in my experience, in these environments, you sort of let them know gently over time and they can acclimate to the fact that they actually know in real life in person someone who opposes abortion mm. and they can like slowly get comfortable with it or not sometimes but <laughs> you, usually you, yes. you ease them into it uh, yeah I like pretty that. much i like that well i've still got some more judgments monica once again you've said you're pro-life so you've got to be a fundamentalist evangelical christian that's it. I know you said you're an atheist, but I don't believe you. Well, yeah, I know I'm an atheist. I've definitely never been an evangelical Christian. Um, I I don't know how to prove that I'm an atheist besides to tell people that I am one. I just, I, I mean, no, no judgment on people who aren't. You know, I'm not trying to convince people to be atheists, but I just am one. <laughs> That's you. Okay. And just to be really certain... And I did steal this from you, so I can't take credit. Let's just be really clear that you are not secretly pretending a Christian pretending to be an atheist so that you can stay relevant in this discussion. No, that would be the longest con. In fact, um, my seven-year-old daughter actually has recently started learning more about Christianity for the first time because it doesn't come up in our house. And I've had to explain to her, you know, that's, that's not what I think. And different people think different things. So I'm having these yeah. conversations with my child very uh-huh. carefully and casually. And then on Twitter, people are telling me that I'm lying. So I guess I'm, in all respects of my life, pretending to be an atheist <clears throat> so thoroughly that one might think that I actually am one. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. That's the true con. Monica, you're in, a, you're in a space that's highly contentious. You know, I've, I've dipping my toe. Ideas Digest, Friends of the Show, we're dipping our toe being like, this keeps popping up. America keeps popping up. Australians try and import the same discussion with limited success, uh, which is why it's an interesting one to go to America to have a look at it. Because I think the, the, the earthquakes in America sent little shockwaves, you know, into Australia. We, we copy America in, in many different ways. But you've been in this contention space. I can see some of the comments rolling on the Instagram live right now. It's like firing already. It's like, abortion should be legal, abortion. Everyone's, you know, firing their opinions. What judgments have you faced in this space or or ones that come to mind about people just judging you personally? Oh, there's there's quite a long list. Um, In particular, as a woman who is vocally against Uh abortion, I have been judged for being a traitor to my gender, uh, especially, oh. I've many times been accused of being an internalized misogynist. I secretly hate myself and all other women. Um, people say that I resent that I have kids and I don't think other people should have the choice. Or alternatively, I think everyone must have kids because I like having kids. Or I, um, mm-hmm. I'm a narcissist and think that the way I do things is the way everyone must. And of course, there's the religion thing. People accuse me of pushing religion basically every time we talk until they realize who we are. And then sometimes they'll back mm-hmm. off that. Other times they'll say we're a secret Christian and they definitely say that we don't care about everybody. We don't care about women. We don't care about children after they're born. We don't care about children in foster care or anybody in poverty. We are apparently we are against um, all forms of social support. We're against, you know, the government helping with paid parental leave or with health care. We basically just um, 
And this is, of course, these are the most extreme voices. This is not everybody. Mm -hmm. But we basically just hate everyone, and we are doing this because we just want to have power and control and also to bring women down because, I, I, I guess, because we hate women, again. So, mm. yeah. And yet you love your job, so square that circle. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of coming to the controversial issues as we move through Sorry to hear about all that judgment you're getting. I'm sure you could give a masterclass on how to function within that, but we'll sign up for that later on. Can you convince me from the outset, so people listening, maybe some Australian friends of the show, maybe some American friends of the show, why should I care? I'm a, I'm a guy. Why should I care about this issue? I'm from Australia. It's like, oh, we don't have Roe v. Wade. We don't have a Supreme Court that seems to be highly politically like assigned. It's like, really you, as an Australian looking in, your systems are just, well, like, okay, that's an interesting democratic system. I, I think I'll stick to ours, but that's okay. Why should, why should I care about this issue at all? Well, so from the secular perspective, we assume as a baseline premise that almost, almost everybody we talk to there might be a few small exceptions, but almost everyone we talk to on either side of this issue believes that human beings are valuable and should have human rights. The question is not, should humans have human rights? The question is, well, there's a couple different questions, but one of the questions is, where do embryos and fetuses fit into that, if at all? So it's not like, oh, do we need to reinvent, you know, the universe and morality in space and time? We, we already agree generally that humans have human rights. I argue that we should care about this issue because from our perspective, the embryo, the fetus, they are, they are certainly biologically human. That is just a scientific fact. And we argue philosophically that they are members of our species, they have moral weight, they have moral value, and they deserve at the bare minimum to not be unjustly killed. Now, it's not as simple as that, and I'm not pretending that it is, because there's still the issues of the right to control your own body, the issues of how reproduction disproportionately affects women compared to men, and many other important things. I'm not, I'm not just saying, well, the fetus is a biological human, end of discussion. However, I do think it brings a very strong interest into the discussion. I, I also reject the idea that sometimes is put forth by the opposite side, that it doesn't matter if the fetus is a person or not, Nobody can use your body against your will. End of discussion. I don't think that that's fair either. Um, and so we argue that all people, men included, women, atheists, Christians, whatever, I don't care. If you are a human being who believes human beings have basic human rights, at least to not be killed, then you should at least be, if not anti-abortion, at least recognize that this is a, a difficult issue at minimum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're saying that this is an issue that affects like it's a decision that humanity have to make and you're saying we should care about it because you're part of the human species and we should engage in this conversation seriously because it has real impacts from your perspective on i suppose us as humans and on the fetus humans yes yes i uh, we view it as a human rights issue and therefore there's yeah. no such thing as it not being anyone's business so we hear all the time all the time don't like abortion don't get one but mind your own business that doesn't make any sense uh -huh. to us because we view it as a human, it's rights, a human issue. rights issue. Yeah, right. and, and at the same time, I understand that activists on the other side feel the same way. You, you would never see a, a, a strong pro-choice activist agree to disagree because from their perspective, it is a human rights issue, but the human rights they're mm -hmm. referring to are bodily autonomy and equality. But, it, but mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons this debate is so difficult because both sides are filled with people who don't see how they could possibly let it go. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Convince me on the inverse then, if you can. Why shouldn't I care about this issue? Why shouldn't you care? I don't think... Mm. If, you, if you were to make a, make a case off the top of your head and, I'm like, and you're like, listen, here's some reasons why you probably shouldn't care. Like Are if I was any? moonlighting as a pro-choice or as like an indifferent? If, I, if it was my job to tell you not to care about this issue, then I would tell you... I could pick a couple different lines. One would be probably that... Um, the fetus is not a human life yet for a variety of different reasons. And so it's not really relevant. Another might be, okay, the fetus is a relevant human life, but there are so many other considerations. And do we really want to be bringing children into this world whose parents aren't ready for them and all the suffering that entails? And that doesn't mean you don't care. It just means like maybe leave it to each individual you know, person to decide if that's going to work for them or not. I think if that was my job, I would say they have the, they know what's best about if they can handle this. Um, it's not going to make things net better for humanity if we decide to make everyone that is pregnant have children. Mm-hmm. I don't actually think that, but that's the case I would make. Yeah, okay, that's an interesting case. I was just thinking, yeah, some people might say, and maybe you've gotten this before, there are so many issues that if you've only got X amount of emotional energy to spend on, maybe don't care about this one. It's not saying it's not important, but maybe they'd hold up another issue going, you know, war in Ukraine or things that are, you know, travesties going on all over the world. I suppose they might bring up something like that. Interesting. Yes. I really like the way you said, if you only have X amount of emotional energy, because that's the reality, isn't it? I mean, Mm. even if you cared passionately about 25 different things, what human can deal with all of them and you have to prioritize. So... Yeah, I think that is something we come up against a lot, especially with something so unpopular and, and, you know, emotional. I think for that reason alone, Mm -hmm. people might prefer to work on issues where there's more common ground and Mm -hmm. it's not so unpleasant. Yeah, I think think you've honestly hit on it. Like a lot of the conversation friends of the show have with me about Ideas Digest is that it's interesting stuff. You know, you can explore challenging ideas. You can see a perspective of somebody else that you might not have engaged with. And that's interesting. But this kind of work, these kinds of conversations take a certain amount of energy. And sometimes out of necessity, you kind of have to go, listen, I'm not, I'm not in the headspace for this. I need to, you know, look after daily functioning of some things. But then um, other people, you only have a certain set of emotional capacity sometimes to engage in these issues. And I suppose that's the wall people come up against and you specifically for this abortion topic, you're going to people saying, Hey, I think you should care about this issue. So if that's where you're headed with this and you go and, and, and I'm in the car yard and I'm looking around at, at, at causes, I'm at a, I'm at a charity fair and everyone's trying to sell me their, their charity or their human rights issue that I should care. It's like, listen, I think it's all important. I'm looking around. Oh, there's, it's overwhelming. What should I support? You know, child poverty over here, abortion over here. It's, well, these are really animal rights over there. Okay. These are very serious things. You're the salesperson. What are you trying to sell as the pro-life product that you have? You've mentioned that there are various different versions of this pro-life movement. Uh, there's the Christian pro-life. You're coming from a secular pro-life. I think we'll get into that in a little bit. But if you were to package it up and say, here is really my main point that I want, if I could, to sell to you, what would that be? I believe 
that abortion has enormously detrimental effects, not only because of the embryos and fetuses that are killed, which is obviously, from my perspective, pretty serious, but also in many other ways for society. And if I have time to tell you more, I will, but basically I think that the need is greater um, in a lot of ways. I also think there's a lot of other issues where the need is very great, but people more, more universally recognize it. There's not as much debate about it, and so there's more access to help for it. So, for example, um, what is a good example? I think the war is a good example, where it seems like almost anybody I would talk to would agree this is a big problem and what can we do? There's not, I'm not saying there are no voices on the other side, but I personally don't experience many voices that are like, no, 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 this is completely fine. You know, that doesn't happen a lot. And I think this is one of the most intractable issues, at least, at least in the United States. Um, the polling has been very consistent for decades, even as we swing hard on other social issues, especially, you know, LGBT issues, drug legalization, all of those things we're seeing more and more movements towards being more liberalized with those things. And then abortion hasn't moved much. It's moved a little bit now because of Dobbs, but that's only in the last few months. It's been very, very tight. I don't, I don't know the right word I'm looking for. Very intractable. So I would say, it's very destructive, it's extremely destructive, and there's not as many people um, prepared to really fight for it because of the, the social costs. And so that's why we need more help. But with your pro-life product, right, if we make it a product, you know, we're all trying to sell an idea. With this pro-life idea, there's many different versions of it. What, I suppose, are the specific ingredients to, to your secular pro-life brand that you have like there's the religious side of it they're coming down going you know we're made in the image of god you know the bible says don't murder and you've got the religious emphasis on it whereas you're coming from a very different space and that might even lead to different pragmatic implications of your position because i think what happens in this discussion is that people say i'm pro life and then people go oh so you're pro this law in Texas that resulted in this like horrific situation for this person. And it kind of all gets lumped in without passing out the different laws that could be implemented if we were to accept the position. And so to pass all those things out, how would you kind of be specific about what you're arguing for? So you're arguing for, at least from what I'm getting so far, some kind of ethical framework that says, well, biologically a human life begins at conception and that is the marker point of this embryo being part of the human species what else would you accompany with that and where would it lead if i was to accept this premise that you're offering sure so we argue that the zygote the embryo the fetus biologically members of the species just like you said and we think that it should be at minimum illegal to unjustly kill them. Now that doesn't necessarily mean a lot of the problems we've been seeing and talking about since Dobbs. So you have situations like if the woman's life is threatened, you have situations like ectopic pregnancies, you have situations like miscarriage management um, and a lot of difficult situations like that. And most of the pro-life people I know, and, and by the way, Christians and secular alike, recognize that there are a lot of situations where this is necessary. The frustration comes in where at least in the United States, the vast, vast majority, like 95% or more of the abortions that happen have nothing to do with those cases. And we want to be able to craft legislation that focuses on 
the situation of you have a healthy fetus carried by a healthy woman and there's no medical emergency and we want to at least focus on that without necessarily making all these other more difficult situations more difficult. Now, in the United States, there's a lot of debate about how representative these cases are. So, for example, Texas is the the example, right? Uh, they did the heartbeat law first almost, at, well, like nine months before Dobbs. And there's been a lot of discussion since Dobbs about what their law entails. And so if you look up the actual legislative text of Texas law on abortion, they'll say legally an abortion means blah, 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 blah. And legally an abortion is not. And they lay out specific circumstances. And one of the things they say is any treatment of ectopic pregnancy. And I don't mean they use some sort of convoluted medical language that technically means that. I mean, it literally says if it's a treatment of ectopic pregnancy, it's not an abortion. Similarly, they say the same thing about if you're removing the remains of an embryo or fetus through a miscarriage, that's not an abortion. And so then we hear these stories where people are saying, well, I'm in Texas and I, I don't think I can treat ectopic pregnancy. And we're saying the law specifically says you can. And there's a lot of suspicion um, going around on both sides. They think that our side doesn't care if this is happening. Our side wonders why it says it so clearly and you're still having problems. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of chaos in the wake of Dobbs. But all that to mm. say that's not necessarily what people who are against abortion want to happen. Mm. When people talk about being against abortion, and there's a lot, I'm not trying to speak for everybody. Like I said, there's a lot of factions in the overarching pro-life movement. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, at minimum, when people say they're against abortion, they are talking about the destruction of, the purposeful destruction of embryos and fetuses that are healthy, carried by healthy women, and not a lot of these other situations. That's usually what they're talking about. And, and we've learned too, since Dobbs has happened, there's no one unifying definition of abortion, legally, medically, socially. Mm -hmm. We've had so many conversations with people um, just talking past each other and then accusing each other of bad faith when they're not using the same definition. Um, talking mm -hmm. about spontaneous abortion, which is miscarriage, and does that count or not? And people think that if you even bring it up, you're trying to trick them and it's just, it's a mess. You've highlighted the fact that there are a lot of different operating definitions that people are using in discussion that have not yet first been clarified by what what do you mean by a legal abortion because obviously when you write a law people like the lawmaker has a list of definitions of when this word is used it means these scenarios and i think it shows just how complicated this whole outflow of certain ideas around when life begins or when a human is considered a, a, a human being, I suppose. And, and then the other half of it. So we've got the ethics half of it, at least of what I'm picking out of this discussion. We've got the ethics half of it. And then you've got the pragmatic law half of it on going, okay, what's the best approach forward if we could agree on some kind of ethical common ground? Before we get to those two splits, which I want to explore, talk to me about your journey to the position you currently hold what i suppose led you into caring about this as an issue and then becoming quite spearheading this version of the movement sure well i i have been pro-life my entire life and it's something that i've always felt very passionately about almost before i could even articulate it uh, my parents raised me that way and there are other things my parents raised me with that I didn't keep. Um, but this one I always felt was very obvious. In fact, I felt it was so obvious that in high school, I was afraid to find out if any of my friends were pro-choice because I thought that would mean that I couldn't be friends with them anymore because it was too serious of an issue, which is amusing now because I have a lot of friends who are pro-choice. But 
I've always been pro-life. I originally didn't speak of it hardly at all because I cared so much and I thought it would just be too too heated and, and too upsetting. And what actually got me out of out of my shell and eventually to here was um, arguing online because I joined Facebook in, I don't know, 2006 or some, sometimes not long after Facebook had started being a thing. They used to have these discussion boards. They don't have them anymore, which I think is unfortunate, um, but they used to have these discussion boards designed for raise a topic, have this long discussion. And I basically stumbled into one um, that had to do with being pro-life and I found it very interesting. I started talking to pro-choice people and getting a much better understanding of where they were coming from, where previously I had thought, how could anyone disagree with me on this? And then I start to talk to them and realize some of the more nuanced positions, some of the stronger arguments, and very importantly, started to get to know them personally and just become friends with them. And so for probably the better part of a year, I was arguing about abortion on Facebook almost daily with like the same three dozen people, um, some of whom ended up coming to my wedding. And, it just really, it shotgunned me into the issue. It, it helped me better understand my position. It helped me improve my arguments a lot. It helped me understand theirs. And then from there, this woman, Kelsey Hazard, she was one of the three or so dozen people that I talked to. She decided she wanted to create a group for secular people. And she knew that at the time I was an agnostic and she asked me if I wanted to help her. And I said, sure, because I figured it would be just arguing on Facebook, which I was already doing. I had no idea when I agreed to join her um, how big it would get for us. I mean, we are we are a small group compared to a lot of American pro-life groups, but for us, it's become a full-time thing. And so we created this group. I think it started off as just a Facebook group, and then we eventually made a website, eventually a blog, and all these things. And we found, especially early on, that a lot of people would contact us and say, I thought I was the only non-religious pro-lifer. I thought I was the only atheist pro-lifer. I'm so excited to see you guys. And uh, we started tabling at conferences and things. People come up to us really excited to see us. Um, And it was very moving for us because we feel very strongly about this. And it helps to know that you aren't aren't alone. Um, You don't have to be a fundamentalist or an evangelical Christian to feel the way that you feel. And and it, it has snowballed from there. So... You've said that you were always pro-life and it just made a lot of sense from a young age. What does, did that, was that gleaned from your parents? What does an environment look like where, was it a religious environment or what does the environment look like if it's not a religious environment with a strong pro-life, like, I will say political stance because if it's an issue at the forefront, I think that makes it political as opposed to like some people might be pro-life or pro-choice without thinking about it. But if from the get from the onset, it's a front of mind issue. I think that makes it a political kind of position. Yeah, held. I think that's fair. If, if, if you're, if you're taking it to the level where you're not just talking about it, but you, you feel compelled to do something. Mm. Um, but yes, yep. no, my parents raised um, my siblings and me uh, Catholic originally. Uh-huh. And, and both of them were, pro-life. My dad in particular was involved. Um, He used to be an engineer and he would engineer signs for pregnancy centers that were, that you couldn't graffiti. Um, We had a pregnancy center where the people would cut down their sign or graffiti their sign. And so he engineered a type of sign where you couldn't do that. And then at some point he ended up um, curious about, uh, are you familiar with Operation Rescue in the eighties and nineties? They would like block clinics no. and not let people in. And it was a very ah, controversial thing. Okay. Um, but anyway, he heard about it and he was curious. He never 
got involved in blocking clinics, but one time he went to a clinic to see what was going on, and a woman was there who was going to get an abortion because she had nowhere to live. And so he called my mom and asked if she could stay with us. And this is, <laughs> I'm the oldest of five children, um, not wealthy, and he, they just moved us into uh, two bedrooms and made an extra room for her. So she stayed with us for the rest of her pregnancy and for some time after, and by then she had like gotten a job, she was able to get an apartment and things. And so these are the kinds of things I was witnessing at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I w- had no awareness of politics as a child. I didn't know mm-hmm. who Democrats or Republicans or anything like that was. But I saw that my parents felt very, very strongly about this, enough to do anything about it. And um, I couldn't point to you to a time when I didn't know about it and then learned about it. I don't recall, but it was always a thing for me. And now when I tell people this, this goes back to the secret Christian thing, because if you're not a secret Christian, maybe you're just like a remnant Christian. Like you, mm, you think you're atheist, somewhere. but it's steeped in you and it can't get mm. out. And I, I don't know how, to me, it sounds like a non-falsifiable theory because there were other things about Catholicism that they raised me with that I have rejected. Quite a few things. Mm. Some things that at one point were very fundamental to my life and now are not a part of it at all. But this mm. has not moved. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think you need religion to care about this. I think it just depends on how you view the nature of life mm-hmm. before birth and other issues too. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to downgrade other issues, but I think that's what it really comes down to for a lot of people. I can, I can imagine some people drawing this, the connection between a religious worldview, whether one is religious or not. So bring me to the ethical framework that you would build up to make the argument that an embryo is not only just part of the human species and should be cared for, but is more along the lines of a person with rights that we should protect with legal status. And because I suppose in opposition to this um, secular framework that you're operating within, some people might say to you, well, the, the arguments you may be drawing on come from a religious framework that, you know, humans are more special and more unique because we are made in the image of God and therefore that's what makes humans so valuable. And even if someone isn't a Christian or religious in the sense, they may say, Monica, you've, you've adopted this framework they do say. Oh, they do say so. Oh, yeah, yeah all the time. <laughs> um, so you've adopted this framework of human life being valuable, but it comes from a tradition where that comes directly from the divine or from God. So what would you put up in opposition to this to set your own ethical framework for the human species being valuable enough to impart human rights with from such an early um, biological stage? Well, there's sort of two points I want to hit. So first, I find it to be hypocritical when people say that I'm coming from this tradition because pro-choice people also believe that humans are very valuable and they argue for human rights on the assumption that humans deserve things like bodily autonomy and equality and nobody asks them if they're secretly religious. It's just assumed that humans are valuable. The question isn't, are humans valuable? It's, when does that value start and why? And to that extent, I find that pro-choice people, and I'm not trying to say everybody, but a lot of people I talk to, they sort of assume that their position is just neutral and any deviation from it must be explained. And I question that because the idea that, and, and this might be an important point to explain to an international audience. In the United States prior to a few months ago, it was 
almost impossible to pass any kind of reasonable legislation in the first six months of pregnancy. That's not the case in most developed nations. Um, we still, to this day, have multiple locations where you can abort for any reason a healthy fetus at any stage of pregnancy, including places that will abort. In fact, NPR just did an article last week about a Maryland clinic that's going to do up to 34 weeks. And so I bring this up not because it's common. It's not common. It's, it's unusual. It happens. But because people wanted me to explain why I should be able to impose the view that we have a valuable human being from zygote onward, but they never feel like they need to explain why they can impose the view that there's nothing of value worth protecting the entire time. Those are both views. Those are both moral views based on some kind of moral premise. And I think both require justification, not just mine. And when I push for justification from the other side, they usually just don't want to answer the question. So when people will say, nobody has the right to use your body against your will, and then I say, so do you apply that to all nine months of pregnancy? Because few people do. Not many people support all nine months of pregnancy abortion. And then they say, well, it doesn't matter because that never happens. Well, it does matter. Do you believe in the bodily rights argument unilaterally or not? And if not, where do you draw the line and why? And where are you getting your justification from? How come only I have to explain it? That is the first point. I think there's a hypocrisy there. But the second point, to actually answer the question. <laughs> so we start with the point where almost everyone agrees that when you have a born child, a newborn, they have the right to not be killed, right? That's not even something that we feel like we need to debate or discuss. It's just like an axiom that we start with. And so then we say, okay, well, we think that prior to their birth, they still had value. And we want to know where you draw the line and why. How do you decide when a human being becomes a, when a human organism becomes a morally valuable person? And people have all sorts of ideas of how they would do that. Some people say viability, some people say heartbeat. A very, very popular one is cognition or consciousness, right? Um, so you have these different frameworks for, okay, you have the set of all human organisms, which ones are morally valuable people that merit some kind of rights, maybe not every single right, but some kind of consideration. And people give you these different frameworks for what they think. We find, and by we I mean the people who run this group and the people who follow us, that those frameworks usually end up being ad hoc and arbitrarily applied. And the people who apply those frameworks usually don't want to apply them post-birth, just pre-birth. And we find them to be very problematic. They often end up, I think, dehumanizing not only fetuses, but also a lot of times newborns, a lot of times people with um, cognitive impairments, a lot of times people with disabilities. So you're saying that discussion on, just to kind of spell out what you're saying here, you're saying that discussion about what makes a, a, a human being worth like valuable and worth saving people are going to say oh well if they have a heartbeat or if their brain waves are firing or if something happens and you go okay if you're going to apply that whilst the baby is inside this the woman then post-birth well the child isn't fully conscious it's still kind of like the baby out there crying is like still kind of thinks it's it doesn't know what it is it's still working out what the hell's going on and so you're saying and then so you're saying that game, if we apply it to humanity, we actually find it very abhorrent. We go, oh, well, I mean, this person isn't as cognitively as capable as me, so are they less valuable than me? That, that seems to be, is that what, what you're saying there? That is exactly what I'm saying. And I'm saying that we, we believe that the, the most consistent and ethical and frankly safe approach is to say, if you're a human, you're a human, and you merit some kind of consideration. Now, it's not the same thing as saying, a zygote is equivalent to a newborn baby is equivalent to a two-year-old. 
there's other considerations. But at a baseline level, you at least merit enough consideration that we think you shouldn't be purposefully killed. That's what, exactly what we're saying. So if you, if you, we outline it on our website. If you, if people want to go to our website, it's at secularperlife.com, I think backslash abortion or something like that. And basically the premises are one, the zygote embryo and fetus are biologically human organisms. Now, a lot of people concede that, a lot of people don't. And then we have to have this whole conversation about biology. But for the people who concede that, we say two, we believe they are morally valuable humans because we recognize that there's a huge personhood debate. We're not saying there isn't. We're just saying we have found all the personhood arguments thus far uncompelling and inconsistent. They seem to us to be created to justify abortion. It's not... It's not like, oh, we thought about what makes people valuable and then as a repercussion of that, abortion is justified. It's more like, how can we make abortion make sense? Um, uh, cortex, let's say cortex, right? That's what it's like. And then when you, when you actually try to extrapolate, people just get irritated, but they don't actually. Now, the horrifying thing is some people will extrapolate and, and maybe you're already familiar with this, but so in the Journal of Medical Ethics in 2012, um, there was a, it's their number one most viewed paper of all time that they've ever published. It's called After Birth Abortion, Why Should the Baby Live? And these philosophers, now the philosophers were not saying, go kill babies, we're fine with it. They were just as a philosophical exercise. That's all. So I just, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to bring hate on these guys. But they were saying, listen, if abortion is justified because of consciousness, cognition, these things, that is what makes you a person, then we all know that the newborn also doesn't have these things. And so to the extent abortion is justified because you're worried about being trapped in poverty or because of these various issues, we are arguing that that would still also be justified very, like right at birth or very shortly after, not like for a year out or something, but just like right at that moment. And they said, we use the phrase after birth abortion and not infanticide because they wanted to emphasize the difference between infanticide, which has to do with killing infants further out and for other reasons versus if you're doing it for the same reasons you would get an abortion. And it was a reviled paper. I'm not saying pro-choice people think this. They don't. Pro-choice people and pro-life people alike hated that paper. What I am saying is it's not only pro-life people who have noticed this, um, what they call the infanticide problem. Um, some pro-choice philosophers have, have noticed it too. And I don't think we're in any great danger of suddenly having infanticide be this accepted normal thing. Um, because I think most people recognize that that's horrific and they, and they reject it in, out, out of hand. I'm saying it makes it inconsistent, the personhood arguments. I like the complexity that you admit with these arguments and I'm not getting a lot of dogma around like this is like I, I have whenever, as I've gone into the front lines and played with the minefield that is this topic. Did you have fun? Was it fun? <laughs> it was it was great. It was actually yes yeah, very very fun time. I'm not on the front lines but I'm watching the front lines. I'm like oh look that person just exploded. That looks horrific. Yeah um, and so and so I like the way you kind of you're, you're nuancing and avoiding this the slippery slope arguments that people might use. They'll say, oh, well, if you do this, then everyone's going to do it. It's interesting to hear you say, okay, I understand that most people don't do it, but this is – it sounds like you're hunting for the – in a complex issue with so many different variables, you're hunting for some kind of ideological – or moral consistency that can then be applied as a standard in as most in as many scenarios as possible. That's the the gist at which I'm understanding you engaging from this in this topic from. Yes, that's that's right. So we, we so to recap again, 
we recognize the biological humanity that begins before mm. birth, and we find that the personhood arguments to justify, you know, human non-persons versus human persons, fraught and yes. historically horrific and currently horrific, and so we reject them. So what I want to do as we move through this discussion is, friends of the show listening, we're moving through, it's like we're on a train and we're moving through different stations that almost have railroads that fork at each single one. So as we move through, I think the interesting thought experiment is to go, and this is what I try and do with the podcast just in general, is to go, okay, um, Monica's set up this framework for biological life. Are you still on the train at this point? Are you like, all right, yep, biology, that sounds about right. Let's keep going. And then. Or did we lose you? Are you gone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you can go, okay, I hopped off the train here for these reasons. And obviously, I can't. I'm kind of doing a, fl- a flyover. Like, it's a bullet train. She's going quick. So, <laughs> so, as we move through these different stages, just see where you kind of hop off. And then I think it will at least narrow down the discussion that people might want to have further going, oh, I took issue with Monica's assumption on this, and that's why I can't go as far. I think that's the interesting experiment, as I think you're someone great to talk to about this, because you're, la- you're laying out your foundations that people can follow along with. And... I suppose moving from that position where you say this person, it's the most simple scenario that can be, that takes this complex idea and reality and goes, okay, if I'm going to operate as a human from this framework of humans are valuable, we've kind of accepted that. There's the argument of, to go to that argument going, okay, well, if human life is valuable, because this is, this is the argument I heard a lot. You're not really asserting it, but I have heard it a lot that says, Human life begins at conception biologically because one plus two, one plus one equals two, and therefore onward it goes. And therefore, it is a human being, the same value as Conrad sitting in front of you right now. And then as people follow on, it goes, okay, but human life isn't necessarily we we have as humans a different value for hu- for life in general so people say the argument i think is too simplistic and it says well life is life but as we move through life like are these people vegans are they vegetarian are we okay with killing plants are we okay life even other issues with humans you know you say life is life but there are situations where we find killing people legally justified or we could argue about it but it's and and, and that's not even you know war and like it, it is too simple to say under every possible com- comprehensive circumstance, nobody should ever, like, ever kill anybody ever. Almost nobody thinks that literally. Uh, some people do, and I'm not trying to, you know, generalize. But, um, yeah, I, 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 think, I think the pro-life movement has a problem. Um, I've seen our side do it a lot where I actually have, I have a presentation called Deconstructing Three Pro-Choice Myths. And before I start on the first myth, I have a whole section where I explain this, where it's like, listen... The actual premises are, in my opinion, we have a biological human. That human is morally valuable for XYZ arguments, right? What we were just talking about with personhood. And then third premise, it's generally wrong to kill morally valuable humans. And then fourth premise, so abortion is immoral. But what I find that pro-lifers do all the time is they take the second and third premise out. So they just say, we have a biological human, so abortion is immoral. And they don't step through that. And so then you, you have people, or they won't even say biological human. They'll just say, it's a human, so abortion is immoral. What more do you need? And, um, and then they'll have people push back and be like, well, is it a human? And they'll be like, of course it's a human, that's biology. But maybe the people pushing back, they're not arguing biology, they're arguing philosophy. Like, 
Is it a morally valuable human? Is it a person? How do we define personhood? And so you have this really bad communication. Um, I don't think the pro-lifers are doing it on purpose. And I think sometimes even when they do try to clarify, the other side doesn't want to hear it. There's, there's all sorts of layers. The, yeah, these discussions have people standing on different ground. And one wants to argue, well, this biological point makes it really simple and makes my point. And then the other people are going, yes, but we're going to the philosophical here because it's not so simple. And neither wants to enter the ground of the other to then progress to the next level. Most of them don't. I think a lot of times they don't even realize they're standing on different ground. I think a lot of times they right. don't they don't have the vocabulary to engage. And there's so much hostility and bad faith, you know, assumptions. It's very, very difficult. I have found... The conversation is night and day when I'm talking to someone in person who I know and I'm not trying to convince them. I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm just saying this is where I'm coming from. I get where you're coming from compared to talking to almost anybody online at all. <laughs> almost. Which is is the interesting thing as I've engaged in this topic. You get the – if we are to pull out the political weapon that this issue is, because if someone is to concede the pro-life position if they are pro-choice, I think the reason why you won't get concession from either way is because it's inherently attached to a political tribe, a political agenda. Yes. We want this through. So, so if we can – what I am finding, and it may be friends of the show as you're listening as this conversation goes, what I actually find when the conversations I've had recently about this topic, it is very different with people willing to engage, you know, the biological discussion, the moral and ethical discussion, the philosophical discussion around these layers than when you merely have the political posturing of people going, I'm a Republican, so I'm pro-life, and I appointed five judges, and here we go, and this is, this is great for X reasons. I think there actually is common ground on this issue. Not enough to fully resolve it. But, for example, I think most people, um, I think most people don't agree with um, a post-viability abortion for without medical emergency, but they might not vote against it because they're afraid if they give an inch, they give a mile. And on our side, same thing. I think there's a lot of people who would be comfortable with certain kinds of exceptions or with laws that had more exceptions than currently do, but they're worried that it's like people think that if they acknowledge common ground, their whole position will fall apart. Yes. Their political so. tribe will ultimately suffer. And to be frank, are they wrong? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. To circle back to what we're talking about is like when a human being begins, when human life begins. I heard it put, it sounds like this sand pile theory. You've got that like one grain of sand and then another and then another and you keep dropping one grain of sand. Eventually that sand grains you drop become a pile. At which point did it become a pile is the complex um, idea that seems to be happening with from conception to developing and it happens throughout life from when the, the baby's born to developing like cognition to separateness a separate sense of self and all these sorts of high level thinking skills eventually we do become a full human but at which grain of sand did we become it that's the difficult discussion we're having and i suppose what happens in and maybe this is or is not your position when when people go okay human life begins at birth and therefore should be imparted the same moral standing as a human being. And then you hear the extreme version of your point, of your position, which could be, well, it's the same as murder. And then that has a whole bunch of other implications. Where do you place that? If, if a human life is valuable, 
is it unreasonable for these people to be saying, and if you kill an embryo that's two days old, that is murder? What's your take on that position? I avoid, and again, this is another thing not everyone agrees on on our side, but I avoid even using the word murder because it it's filled with connotations for different people that are imprecise and have that same how did you phrase it before coming from different positions that's why we just say something more literal like killing or destruction or or i don't even know inducing demise whatever um because i find that the whole concept of murder has legal and social connotations that even the pro-life movement doesn't fully agree with so you'll find in at least in the circles i run in and from everything i can tell the vast majority of American anti-abortion activists do not support laws that would prosecute women for seeking abortions. And that would seem inconsistent with saying, oh, it's just straight murder. Um, a lot of times the, the activists view, they call it the um, second victim, where they believe that abortion victimizes first the embryo or fetus that is killed, but secondly, the woman who may not have necessarily, like given infinite resources, may not have necessarily wanted to get an abortion in the first place. They view it as um, coercive in a lot of situations. I'm not going to pretend every situation. Um, and so they don't see it as simple as like, oh, you, you have a two-year-old and you hire a hitman, right? It's not, that would be a very different situation. So yeah, no, I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, any anything to do with this, if you cause the death at any point, then that is murder. I think that that's, um, I think there are cases that could qualify. I think there are cases where, um, especially like I've mentioned before, if it's post viability, non-medical emergency, I think that it's hard to argue, um, otherwise, but no, from the very beginning, I think it's more complicated than that. I think you have whole issues of, even if you take my perspective, like even if you took my perspective that from zygote on you have a valuable human who deserves to not be killed, right? You also have to imagine then growing up in a society where huge cultural institutions insist to you not only that it's not a baby, but that it's nothing of, of any consideration whatsoever. And that all of um, pluralism and secularism and feminism and all modern thinking would recognize that this is trivial, basically, um, except for on a personal private level. And you've, you've been told that from everybody all around you your whole life. That's not the same thing as killing a two-year-old. Nobody says that about two-year-olds. There's just not the same kind of campaign. Um, so no, I don't think it's as strange as that. Murder involves not just, murder is not just about if you have a valuable human who is killed. It's also about motivation. It's also about mens rea. And I think that it's oversimplifying to call abortion murder in all contexts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if to take your premise that a human life is, is valuable and worth not killing uh, from conception, how does that play out in these, I forget what it's called. Is it the, you've probably heard of it, the embryo uh, conundrum or something where they go, there's a burning building and there's five The IVF embryos. lab. Yeah. Or some people call it the embryo rescue case. Yeah. That's it's like, what it's like the trolley with. problem, but with an IVF lab. That's right. So, and, and that I think lays out that there's, you know, five embryos that people say would have an equal weight and there's one baby. You can only save one in a burning building. Which one do you save and why? Everybody, well, not literally, but almost everybody says the baby, including pro-life people. And then they're like, well, five to one. So how do you navigate that? 
Well, so basically, it's there's all sorts of other issues pro-life people bring up with that. So one of the alternative examples is like if you say, oh, let's say you said um, you have a baby and then you have your your baby, somebody else's baby and your baby. And if you save your baby, does that mean their baby is not really a valuable human being? No, it doesn't. It means you were thinking about other things besides just you have two babies. And so with the IVF, with the IVF lab case, usually what pro-lifers will say is, well, first of all, you have possibility of survival. Um, the baby can survive embryos, maybe, maybe not, especially very early embryos. Like for, forget the thought experiment for a second. We have failed implantation or, you know, something like 25% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. So people conceive of, um, not to, I wasn't trying to make a pun. People think of embryos as less likely to survive in the first place, all else being equal. There's also the potential to suffer. An embryo cannot suffer, like a, or like a, like a zygote or whatever, and then and a child can. So then some people will try to get it weirder and they'll say, what if you had, you know, a child who was in a coma and anesthetized and wouldn't feel anything and the embryos were also high probability viable and then you start to and and i find the weirder you make the thought experiments the harder it is for people to even use their intuition because they're trying to even imagine that this is happening and so generally speaking their response is this is a terrible analogy because abortion is not about which life to save in almost any case it's about which life to take when nobody is in danger and so you're you're bringing up not you personally, Conrad, but like the, I, the IVF lab scenario is about, oh, if you have to let a toddler die or five embryos die, and that has nothing to do with abortion because in the most abortion, it's do you let an embryo die or not do that? And nobody else dies. So then how, do, how does, I think the implication I thought of straight away with, with that scenario is what do we do with IVF? As a, as a treatment that results in the death of a lot of embryos to get one viable embryo. And you have like contrasted to, uh, I saw a lot of um, groups that were formed with people who were, that maybe they would say survivors of abortion, being like their parents wanted one, but then didn't get one or something. And they're like stoked to be alive and they want to get their story out there. I guess you could conceive of a similar group of people who are going, I'm an IVF child. I would not exist if my parents didn't go through like this. And the result, you know, there was a lot of embryos that didn't make it and I'm the one that made it. So I exist because of that. How do you, how do you navigate that? So I'll preface this by saying that from what I can tell um, of pro-lifers, like generally, like not necessarily activists, but people who, if you just ask them, they're like, well, I guess I'm pro-life, is they have not thought about the IVF thing at all, or even necessarily are aware of how IVF works. That's more specific to activist circles. Um, And in activist circles, I find you'll find a lot of activists on the pro-life side who are like, yeah, IVF is a problem for the same reason. Like maybe theoretically, Mm -hmm. it could be fine if, if, I don't think there's anything immoral about using technology to help people who are struggling with infertility. I don't think there's anything morally superior about fertilizing an egg the the traditional way versus not, right? Um, And so if there was a theoretical way that IVF could work where you create an embryo, see if it can implant, if it doesn't do the next one, personally, I don't really see an issue. Mm -hmm. But the fact of making a whole bunch of embryos, putting a bunch in to increase your odds, knowing a lot of them won't make it, or even more controversially, maybe several of them make it and then you abort a couple to increase the odds of, of one making it, right? Or leave them all frozen for long. Like there, you see stories about there was an embryo that was frozen for 40 years and then implanted and, you know, was successful. Whoa. And now you have this baby who's like, is Literal she one years old? Travel. Is she 41 year old? You know, like, yeah. I mean, I'm being hyperbolic. I don't remember the exact numbers, but like for a very long time, right? Um, 
That said, it's if you talk among at least from when I talk to activists, and there's another group you might want to check out if you're looking for unconventional American pro-lifers. There's this group called Rehumanize International. Um, and they talk a lot about this, where they think that they see IVF as the commodification of children, basically. And, and then there's also the issue of like pre-testing embryos for certain genetic traits and selecting only the ones that have the traits you want. And there's only so many traits you can test for now, but it's always increasing. And then you start to get, get into um, disability activism. And like, if you have a child who has some kind of disability, do you abort them and start over? You know, what does that mean? Like, you can talk about bodily autonomy, but that's not really about bodily autonomy because you were prepared to go through a pregnancy and have a kid, just not that kid, you know? And so it kind of, it kind of brings up all kinds of issues. You've sufficiently further complicated an already complicated ethical quagmire that we find ourselves in going, this is, I suppose, the point. Like, what I'm calling out is going, you've... You're pointing at this position and and saying, "Hey, I want to sell you this position that says life begins here." And I think it's, you know, it's still complicated, but it's the the most simple and applicable in most range of scenarios that I can come to. Moving beyond that ethical, because I think you can kind of keep going down all these different hypotheticals and what does it lead to and what are the implications. I think the main thing that's interesting to draw out is the fact that the decisions at this end will have implications that you may or may not foresee in all those spaces that you reference disability, um, ethics of IVF, science and progress, um, you know, studying disease and how we get cures because obviously it, it like things can be unethical here, but then result in saving lives over here. It seems this like very complex area here. Yeah, but I have a little pushback there because we're looking at all the complications from my worldview and we don't spend any time looking at the complications from, I think, the other side. So like the disability issue is a good example where um, Down syndrome abortions are done at an astronomical rate in the United States and in Europe. I, I don't know about Australia. And they're done well, they're done after 20 weeks often. It's starting to be pushed earlier, but for a long time you couldn't detect Down syndrome until after 20 weeks. And so you have this issue of aborting children flirting with viability because of a disability and defending it on the grounds of equality. Um, it's very controversial. If you look up Heidi Crowder in the UK, there are people with Down syndrome and their families suing the British government because the British government limits abortion to 24 weeks unless you have a disability like Down syndrome and then you can do it all the way up until birth. Um, and there are other issues of, um, well, we talked about the problems of dehumanization at the other end. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the Kermit Gosnell case. It's a, it's older now. I think it's like 2013 or something in the United States where there was this abortion practitioner who was doing illegal abortions late term and in an illegal method where he would, he called them abortions, but he would deliver infants and then kill them. Um, he was tried for murder and everybody agrees on that. I'm not saying that people are like, oh, you know, don't worry about that. But he, um, he did have people on the pro-choice side that were saying, well, this is kind of iffy because if you say that this is murder, then what's the difference between this and doing the abortion, you know, a little bit earlier? And you're like, that's a great question. That's a great question, but I think I'm coming to different ends than you. My point being that we spend a lot of time looking at the ethical quandaries of the early end, and we have to, and we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we don't spend a lot of time looking at the other end. People just throw up their hands and say, it's her body, it's her choice, and then don't want to talk about what the implications are um, on the later end either. I think what I'm getting from your point there is to say you're pitching a worldview that obviously in this conversation, I'm then stretching going, oh, where does it apply here? Where does it apply there? But you're 
you're kind of pitching it and and offering us to remember here is this worldview i think it's the best one i can come up with and i think it's worth selling to you but let's remember the context in which it's pitched so in a in a longer form conversation with multiple participants, you'd, you'd move from one worldview and you'd say, Hey, I, I think my worldview, yep, it has some ethical dilemmas and you've got to like wrestle with it and see where it leads. But let's contrast it to the alternatives, which sounds like you're saying also you. have yes. their own set of ethical difficulties. We have a responsibility to defend the hard edges of our cases like IVF and like issues like that. But I find the other side won't even acknowledge the existence of the hard edges of their case, like late term elective abortion, won't even acknowledge the existence. And I just mm. want uh, an even playing ground, even playing field, mm. not playground. Sorry. <laughs> play, play field. Not a playground. Could, it's very serious. We could play anywhere. Yes. No, yeah, it's very serious. But yeah. that's, that's true. Yeah. So from from that ethical world that we can, you know, like we said, there's different worldviews with different implications. And this is what I think a few podcasts I listen to. There are like like ethicists that literally are at universities philosophically exploring exactly these things. And in the episode I listened to, this woman was like, yep, these are the scenarios and that's what they are. And we all have to grapple with it, I suppose. And that leads us to the pragmatic because we go, this is very complicated ground. Um, a win over here for one group might be a lose over here for another subsection of society. How do we weigh the needs of other people based on the decisions we've made? So if we move to the pragmatic grounds of, okay, what if, if let's say we take your position and go, a embryo must be saved for as much as possible and abortions should be illegal. Can you unpack that position for me? Because I think this is actually the, the second half of the conversation. I think there's two conversations happening. One conversation is, hey, a life is a life. Here are the ethics, the end of story. And therefore, abortion should be illegal. But then the, And then the pro-choice conversation seems to be operating on the grounds of let's get to the pragmatic realities of implementing such a law and what does abortions being illegal look like because like you said if someone has the moral weight that it's murder well it should be illegal and not only illegal you should prosecute the mother and if they go out of state and your state has it illegal get whatever data you can and prosecute her because she's a murderer What's your position? You've mentioned it should be illegal. What's your position as you give a a better understanding of what you think should be illegal and what that looks like on a legislative level? So we definitely think that if it's illegal, then penalties should focus on providers and not seekers, um, meaning that people and and what those penalties should be is also an open question but we definitely do not agree with prosecuting women seeking abortion we think that a lot of times they don't share the same information or premises that we do and maybe someday down the road that would be different but right now with the conversation the way it is it's not so clear we also think a lot of women seek abortion because they feel like they don't have a choice because they feel like they don't have the resources and so we look for laws that will make it illegal to provide abortions um, and specifically elective abortions. So not anything to do with if her life is in danger, um, not anything to do with managing miscarriage or treating ectopic pregnancies, nothing like that. Um, and we also think, and this gets into, you know, additional issues that this all needs to coincide with, it needs to coincide with sufficient support for people carrying pregnancy, sufficient support for people who want to avoid pregnancy, uh, sufficient education. Contrac uh, that's another thing. Um, my particular group, Secular Pro-Life, is very pro-contraception. 
And we like to point out that there's a lot of data to show, especially in the United States, that when you restrict abortion, people use contraception more. They use more effective contraception and they use contraception more often. And so paradoxically, when you restrict abortion in the longer term, a lot of times you see unintended pregnancy rates go down because people are being more careful to avoid unintended pregnancy. Now, I'm not saying they disappear. They never disappear, but they do decrease. And we think that's an important part of the puzzle, too. I don't know if you've seen I don't know if you've seen these, but there there's been a rash of stories talking from men's perspective, talking about how, you know, once I found out Roe v. Wade was being overturned or once Roe v. Wade was overturned, I was like, you know what, I got to get a vasectomy because it's it's too risky. And they're kind of controversial because on the one hand, good, thank you. If you if you if you you're not putting it all on her to avoid pregnancy, to deal with contraception, you know, you're like, I can do something here, too. But also, why did you wait till now? <laughs> you could have if you knew you didn't want kids before you could have just that was always allowed, you know. Um, but in any case, it's, it's a, it's an anecdotal example of a phenomenon where, um, it's not simply that you had, you know, hypothetically 700,000 abortions last year. And this year you will have, if like, say you banned it nationally, 700,000 births. It's not like that. A lot of times people are more careful. In fact, there's data to show that when Roe v. Wade was originally decided, unintended pregnancy rates skyrocketed, um, and they think, and, and there's actually data to show that STD rates increased after Roe v. Wade was decided because there's sort of this, um, I don't think it's as simple as people saying, oh, whatever, I could just get an abortion. I don't think that's how most people think of it. But it is something like, I don't think I'm going to get pregnant now. I really don't. But worst case scenario, if I did, it's not like I wouldn't have any options. It's more like that, you know? Anyway, sorry, I, I got on a tangent there. Um, we think you need to have... Good access to contraception, especially highly effective contraception. Good education about um, women's fertility, about men's fertility, about how to avoid these things in the first place. That's the frustrating thing is there should be a ton of common ground between both sides about education, access, resources for people who, even if they didn't intend to get pregnant, would be fine with it if they had the resources to take care of it. All of those things should be easy common ground. But it feels, again, like people don't want to partner with each other if it means crossing ideological lines. Um, so I suppose the, the problem I see with the pragmatic argument is that the stereotype of the pro-life side is that we are pro-life and therefore making it illegal is the number one priority and we will do so. Like I don't see any nuanced debate, obviously from the outside in and the political stereotype. I don't see any nuanced debate or anyone speaking up saying, yo, this Texas one that has implemented the law like this and disincentivized because the argument would be for some of these laws, it's disincentivized providers to even on those edge cases that are legally allowed to be done. The person, the abortion provider says, you know what, in this highly litigious American society where someone is going to prosecute me for something, it's safer for me to not touch this ectopic pregnancy. So Matt, you just listened to the episode. You and I are oh. about to, like, okay, give me some hints first up before we go into the Super Friend segment. Did any ideas shift for you listening to Monica's Yeah, arguments? I mean, like, to be honest, you could picture me in the boxing ring. I was getting my gloves ready. Yep. I'm ready to come in with my biases. Yep. Ding, ding. Fight's coming in. Straight in. And I've got a few right hooks that are coming in. Like, I know all right, here's a good argument. Land. Here we go. Yeah. Like Matrix. Yeah, she dodged them. <laughs> dodged them. I'm like, wow. 
Okay. Okay. So you found just, some arguments you yeah, had. Yeah. Might may not have been up to the task. Of, so I was like, okay, she knows about the right hooks. What about the jab? <laughs> All the old rope it dope. Oh. All right. So coming in, jab. Yeah. Coming in, got you now. Ducks up too. Yeah. So right. So she for you, she provided some pretty good arguments. And then I'm swinging through the air, and then I'm. <laughs> she hit you. She hit me straight like you. I think. Like straight. Yeah, she did. Plexus. She did. She wins you. She wins you. Okay, so I think mm. it's fair to say you, you've had your mind shifted a little bit on yeah. this, listening to this. Okay, now- I'm a bit, yeah, to be honest, after listening to her, I've had my mind scrambled a little bit. Yeah. Because okay. so, I think I've realized there's that bias within me is that I maybe have jumped on this pro-choice movement. Uh, without hearing the best of the other side? No. I just always assume there's a religious connotation to it and it super triggers me. I just ah, go, yeah. so you dismiss it before. Yeah. Right. Like, it, like it's almost like a- Swipe away, not interested. Yep. Um, or this is the bias you're there for is because you really have a religious agenda at these clinics and things like that. Yes. yes. Um, or, or they're very so I guess, unwaveringly extreme. Yeah, I guess. And, and to hearing some of her arguments, I thought, uh, were very well thought out. Um, she really, well she really out. was great at but, engaging. But, with another thing I really enjoyed about how in your, your engagement with her was great in that sense of how I felt like she... She genuinely was aware of some of those biases as well. Yeah. Yes. Like a bit self-reflective going, yeah. I understand how they would see me, yeah. but this is how I see me and I believe it. But I also understand that the other side believes it just as vehemently. Yeah. There was no vilification from her, which as an Ideas Digest uh, host and the friends of the show will appreciate that, I think. Yeah. It's not that vilification of the other side. Oh man, I'm super curious to know what she changed. Like, what she what changed my mind with on. you. So, if you made it to the end of that episode and you listened to the whole interview and you disagree with the whole thing, I'd like you to jump on Instagram, send me a DM at Ideas Digest, and I will send you a golden emoji to show our appreciation to you for finishing an episode that you disagree with. If you agree with the whole thing, mm. I'll send you a bronze one. But if you disagree and say, Conrad, that triggered me a lot, but I made it, golden emoji for you, send me a DM. And if you would like to hear, what, how Matt has shifted and maybe what she changed my mind on. Super friends of the show are going to hear that right now. So you can head to itisdigest.org, sign up for the show. And remember, our war with the algorithm rages on. So if this episode might be something someone might agree with, a friend, you go, hey, you'll really like this, send it to them. Hey, thought, thought of you. And then to break that algorithm echo chamber, send it to maybe someone who might be challenged by it. You know, you don't have to be as aggressive as Matt being like, only idiots wouldn't like this. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> no, no. You can just you can just give it the soft intro being like, hey, curious on your thoughts on this. Yeah, sure. You know, and really expand that because haters are just friends of the show that don't know it yet. And we uh, we have such, such, such vision for this this platform. So much vision. So much vision that we uh, we can't do it without you guys. So thank you so much for everyone that's supporting us. Seriously. Yep. Um, even uh, a review. A if, review. If you haven't got the cash, that's fine. We've all been there, but that's a, a five-star review. Five. Yep. And mention Matt. Because <laughs> Conrad me. gets all the reviews. I got some reviews. Just mention me at the end. Just like, and Matt just does go, Conrad's too. amazing, blah, blah, blah. And P.S. Matt's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. Um, and so, yeah, thank you so much for everyone that sends a review yep. or supports us. Um, we really believe that ideas are something that just totally, uh, you know, you would say causes so much destruction to relationships mm -hmm. and families. Yep. I've come part of, joined part of this family, become part of the, the Ideas Digest family because I've experienced so much pain in this area. I know. So I'm really, we are very excited about all this other content we can create. Yep. 
and hopefully make this world a better place. Oh, we do want to make the world a better place, don't we, Matt? That was good. Thanks for tuning in. I thought in. like it was at the end of the beauty pageant of like, what do you want? World, world peace. peace. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode. Monica, thank you so much for taking so much time to just unpack and explore all these things. I think you're someone who engages with this in a really good faith way and takes the best of someone else's argument and kind of responds to it in a, in a way that kind of can bring people along and explain your position. So thanks so much for taking so much time. Thank you for, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I really do appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. And uh, people in the live chat that joining us here on Instagram, uh, a few people asked... Um, for some of the notes and studies that you were mentioning, if people want to maybe see some of the studies and, and, and analysis on the data you were mentioning and follow you and your work, where can they do all that stuff? So our website is uh, secularprolife.org. And if you want to look at, uh, I'm, I, all of our stuff is United States based, but if you want to look at research talking about abortion regulations and abortion law we have that there if you go to the website there's like a section that says content and then a section that says research and then there's collections of all these different studies it's just a landing page you can link to the original studies talking about abortion rates pregnancy rates abortion law uh, all of that stuff if you want to look at our perspectives on um dem- demographics of pro-lifers religion and how that plays a role or doesn't bodily rights all that thing we got tons of content on the website if you want to spend like way too much time reading about this Awesome. Thank you so much. So if anyone wants to check that out, they can do that there.